without any further ado, we shall get going. We're having a kind of a squidge through some of the research to do with uh, design thinking. And um, this was a request of some of the members, so I thought we'd have a look at it. Um, so I've put part one. Um, this morning it was part one, question mark. I didn't know whether I was going to do part two or not, but um, as a result of this morning's session, quite a few people wanted some more around the stages, which you'll see in a minute. So I shall go off and squirrel away and do that. I'll explain a bit more as we kind of get on. So what is, oops, Russ, what is, to come in what is design thinking um loosely put it's a kind of a practical problem solving approach which has brought together a kind of a number of broad design methods into a simple replicable framework design thinking itself the the original framework came out of stanford um but has been like the process of design thinking has been iterated and developed on, and there's been a lot of research and it's become very, very popular. So we shall have a look at all of that now. Um, essentially, essentially design thinking, it's termed as a human-centered design process. The idea is to put the human being, the, the end user, um, at the centre of the whole process. And as a result of that, there are a series of principles of what has become known as human-centred design. And we'll have a look at what those principles are, or the main ones anyway. So the first and the, the, main, the main principle is this idea, and, and this will crop up a few times during this session, around empathy for users. And what design thinking or design thinkers are trying to do is gain a deep understanding of the user's experience, so the end user's experience, their needs, and their challenges through a whole series of techniques such as interviews, observations, creating user personas, and, and things like that. So it really what they're trying to do is get inside the end user. So the customer, the client, whatever it happens to be, whoever's going to be using whatever it is that we're producing. It involves, as a result of that, a lot of involvement from users and, uh, and doing so actively in the design process through a series of co-design sessions, workshops, uh, things like usability testing to ensure that the solutions that are being developed during the process really meet their needs. We'll, we'll have a, a little bit of a look at that in a second. It's based on this idea of iterative design. So it's adopting a kind of a, a cyclical approach that involves prototyping, testing, and refining solutions over and over again, based on user feedback and observations of how users are doing things to ensure the final product or service has a, is as user-friendly as, as possible. And you'll start to see here, and in fact, there's one or two studies that kind of look at this, you'll start to see parallels here with things like Agile 
um, and also lean methodologies. They're very closely tied together. And I say there are a few papers that start to do comparisons between the three of those things. And there's been a number of interesting studies that have shown that organizations that are doing or playing with Agile and organizations that are doing or playing with Lean tend to benefit from design thinking. But we'll we'll have a look at that as, as well shortly in some of the research around that. It's about solving real problems, real world problems, um, that are faced by the users rather than just kind of filling technical specifications or business objectives um, and that it's that it's based on whatever it is that the end users within their workplace or within the context with which they're trying to deal with whatever it is that they're trying to deal with. A lot of design thinking is achieved through multidisciplinary teams so it's kind of bringing together diverse perspectives from a, a series of different fields, such as psychology, design, anthropology, engineering, and so on and so forth, um, physics, to ensure that there's kind of a holistic approach to the problem solving, and we're not just looking at it from one angle. And again, this has an impact on organizations, which we'll have a look at again shortly. And then there's this whole thing about accessibility and inclusivity, about ensuring that designs are accessible and inclusive um, and catering for the needs of the people with a wide range of abilities, backgrounds and experience. So that is user as user friendly as possible. And a nice example of this, and one of the examples that I know are used in business schools and things, uh, are the iPhone. When the iPhones first came out, the whole principle behind the iPhone is that you didn't need a manual. It was just, you know, it was intuitive and that it's that intuition that would drive it. You just look at it and you go, okay, I think I know what to do. And it works without having to be told what to do. So, and the iPhone is one of the, the, the common examples that's used in design thinking kind of programs and things, particularly within um, universities. So, as I say, in essence, human-centered design is about putting humans at the center, right at the heart of the innovation process, and making sure that things aren't just technologically sound, but that they resonate with the individuals who are going to be using them at a kind of a deep level. It's just intuitive. It's as easy as possible for them to access it. It removes as many obstacles to the use of whatever it is and what's interesting is the range of industries that design thinking is starting to become used in. And uh, we'll, as I say, we'll have a look at that as well in a second. So what is it? What does it look like? And there's a number of models of design thinking, but they've kind of coalesced into a kind of a seven-stage model. So the Stanford one was originally a five-stage model. It's been changed. There are 12-stage models and various other bits and pieces. There's a lot of research around design thinking, way more than I realized. Um, there's about 3 million papers looking at design thinking. Um, and just in the last two or three years, there's about 300,000 papers 
looking at some aspect of design thinking. It's astonishing how much research is going into this. It's a big deal, way more than I, I understood. So let's have a look at these stages. So the first stage, which is the most critical, is about defining the problem. How do we define the problem? And have we actually got the problem that we're, we're kind of looking at now? So let me, I'm going to take you out of this and just take you into kind of my world a little bit um, because it kind of adds in here. Let me just stop this and we'll do a whiteboard thing. Get to play. So this is some work that I was involved in years ago, some research around the whole uncertainty thing and how people react to uncertainty. When we started to have a look at kind of problem solving in uncertain kind of contexts, we, we there were some realizations that we were having around what was going on um, in organizations particularly. So this is a timeline, the future's at this end and the past's here. And now, wherever now is, um, we'll just mark by that blob there. Now, what we found was that, it, particularly within organizations, when an organization or people within an organization become aware of one of these things, a problem, oops, I didn't spell problem then, is that quite often what they're describing isn't the problem. They think it's the problem, but actually what it is, is one of these, or a load of these. Oops, really can't spell. Usually what people are describing as a problem actually tend to be a set of symptoms. So I'll give you an example. So if we're driving a car and there's a, the car starts making a horrible noise, what we do is we take the car to the garage and say it's making a horrible noise. To us, that's the problem. The mechanic knows that's not the problem, it's a symptom, and it's a symptom of something else. And what they have to do is find out what on earth led to this horrible noise and deal with it. And similarly, if you go to a doctor's with a stomachache, you know, to us, it's the problem. The stomachache is the problem. But to a doctor, it's a symptom. And what the doctor has to do, very much like the, um, the mechanic, the doctor have to, has to work out what the problem actually is. And so one of the principles of this is there is always, and I mean always, whoops, what's that doing that? No, I don't do that. Okay, we'll do that then. That'll do. Right, there is always a time gap between a problem occurring and the symptoms being noticed. Yeah, like process consultation in OD. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and so we've got a number of issues. So, I'm, and I've got to bring two things in here about problem definitions, finding the problem, and also that whole thing that I was talking about about multidisciplinary teams. So, I was in. I was doing this research, looking at way people were solving problems in uncertain situations. We started to notice that this was happening, and particularly in organisations, that most people in organisations are solving symptoms, not problems, largely because they 
now and again, you get people doing critical incident analysis and things and trying to work out what the problem is. But we noticed something interesting happening. There was a distinction between what people in organizations were doing and what entrepreneurs were doing. They were solving problems in very, very different ways. And the way I would liken it is a little bit like this. The first assumption is within the organization, as I say, they, they assume that what they're seeing is the problem and it tends to be the symptoms. Now, as time's marching on, usually those symptoms get worse or start to transform in some way. And the urgency then to solve that, that they see as the problem, is becomes greater and greater and greater. So the moment you notice it, the more need there is, the more urgency there is to, to deal with it. As time goes on, it tends to get worse. So the first issue is that they're solving symptoms, not problems. That's by the by. When we started interviewing people in organization about what they were trying to do by solving these problems, largely what they were trying to do was get back to how it was before the problem occurred. Right. And when you think about that, and it wasn't until so I, I, we did all this research and then I showed the research to kind of multidisciplinary team. And there was a guy in there who was a physicist, and I showed him also what, um, oh, yes, the adhesives come in life cycle. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, we'll come back to that. I'll get John to explain it a little bit. What we found with the entrepreneurs was that what they tend to do is not this. They tend to look at a situation, what's going on, how are people reacting, and what is it I can do to ameliorate that. So what kind of product or service can I do that will help these people not to have this issue? So they're moving off in a slightly different way. They're not trying to get back to how it was. They're trying to move into a new future. Completely different mindset, completely different way of looking at all of this. So I showed all of this to, a, a, we had chemists, physicists, and all the rest of it. We have this multidisciplinary team at, at the end of this piece of research. And this physicist kind of sat down and went, oh, that's interesting. It's all about energy. Oh, energy? What do you mean? And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, it's, it's quite simple. And he says, down here, what's going on? When, you, when you're thinking of solving problems like this to get back to how it was, actually, what this is, is negative energy. It's not really, it's productive in as much as, you're solving a problem, but it's seen as a problem, and we're just trying to get back to how it was. Up here, though, is a different type of energy. It's a positive energy. We're moving forward and we're progressing. So what we found was these entrepreneurs were looking at these issues from a completely different a different approach. So when we get back to the, the slides in a second, what I'm doing is I'm bringing in two things here. Well, three things, my research, because I'm biased towards it, of course. Um, also, the, the idea of making sure that we're defining the problem before we're trying to solve it, or that we're saying, this is the situation, what's the reality of what's happening now, and what can we do to improve this situation for these people? So design thinking can do both of those things. They can either backtrack 
and work out what the actual problem is rather than solving the symptoms. And we will do. So one of the requests from this morning session is that we do a thing on problem definition and how do you go about that? So we'll we'll have a look at what some of the research says. Um, and, and it's not an area that I kind of, I just kind of did the model and moved on because I was more interested in the uncertainty of what this was creating for people in their minds. Being a psychologist, that's what I would do. So, um, but the other thing, so there's the problem definition, but there's the issue about multidisciplinary teams. What this guy did, the physicist did, was a complete breakthrough in the way that we started to think about um, solving problems from a, an energy point of view. And it really transformed the way that we started thinking about how people are operating in organizations and particularly how people are operating with uncertainty. And we find people who have a high tolerance for uncertainty, when chaos is happening, when there's a lot of uncertainty, they tend to operate up here. And the people who prefer more certainty, have a lower tolerance for uncertainty, tend to operate down here. And it's kind of transformed the way that we're kind of now approaching things like tolerance of uncertainty, but also the whole thing about uncertainty in organisations, emotion contagion and, and various other bits and pieces. Before I kind of move on from here, any comments, questions, or thoughts about this little discussion? Take that as a no, Dave. Right. Okay, cool. Right, let's go back to our slides. Hi, Max. Just seeing you there. And Marjorie. Hello, Marjorie. How are you? Let's go back to our thing. So the first stage, design thinking, is this um, defining the problem, making sure that you've actually got the problem. The second stage is doing some research. And this starts to sound a little bit like evidence-based practice, and it is in a way, but a slightly different way. The research, however, is about learning about the problem through collecting a whole load of information and observing users, seeing what's, and it's just like the entrepreneurs thing, what they do is they observe, they're trying to find the reality of the situation from the observer, from the user's point of view. What are these people going through? What's their experience? Which connects with that principle about empathy. We're trying to get inside their life in order to see how they're viewing this, how they're feeling about it, what are the issues that they're facing. Because once we've got that empathy and we have that research, we start to get it from, we start to understand the world from inside the user, we can actually do some really interesting things. So the next um, stage of this is ideation. This is about developing solutions without evaluating them coming up with as many different crazy solutions as possible. So let me give you an example, um, one that I was on the kind of periphery of. You know the um, the tagging system that they use for criminals, where they put tags on their legs, right? I was at um, I was an, a, an ideation meeting that came up with that idea. But it came up with, an, with the idea because a police officer said, how useful it would be if we could dye all people who'd been convicted pink because we'd be able to spot them quickly. 
Right? And that was that was the solution, and everybody kind of laughed. And then they started thinking about it, about, okay, how can we do this technologically? And that's where the whole thing about tagging came from, was that meeting in Belgium with that police officer saying, dyeing everybody bright pink so that we can see them. And that's an example of ideation. Eventually, after a, a, a process that we'll see here, eventually then turning into tagging, going, you know, and this is right back in the 80s. Then is prototyping. And what that means is building really quick iterations of potential solutions with really low cost. It's like string and sellotape models, like really low cost materials, no particular workmanship, just thrown together to see what happens. And it's about speed rather than quality. We're just trying to iterate fast here and see what gets purchased. And if the users go, oh, actually, this is useful, then we'll start to focus on quality. But we just want lots of prototypes out there to see what works. It, it doesn't matter what it looks like, what it feels like, just get them out there, see what happens. Then it's once you've got those prototypes out there, we go through a process of um, choosing particularly, preferably one solution or one or two solutions that, that are then going to be pursued for the remainder of the process. So once the users are giving feedback and they say, oh, this one's good and this one's good, right, we'll start manufacturing those, we'll start iterating them, we'll start improving them. Which then comes back to the sixth stage, which is about implementation, where the solution becomes fab fabricated. And then, so the first iterations are fabricated, and this is the important thing, is it then gets placed in the real context, the real world context that it's going to be used in to see whether it's, so in the place, John, for example, whether it's police officer proof, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, or it's HR proof or whatever it happens to be. Let's see whether they can actually work with it, see whether it does what we think it's going to do. Okay. And then the last thing is about learning. And this is where the designers start obtaining feedback on the solution and they start reflecting about what's happened during the design process um, and how the users are interacting with it and what more iterations need to need to occur and as i say that these are more defined than the original stanford school model that, that came out years and years ago right. so Having said all of that, and there's a whole load of stuff out there, you'll find YouTube videos about design thinking processes and things like that. You know, you can go and have a look at those. What I found, though, that was interesting was a couple of papers, one in particular, looking at design thinking competencies, which was really interesting. And it's this paper here. It's um, about human-centered design. And they were looking at a... You know, which are the most important competencies, which are the hardest competencies to master, basically, which are the ones that you really got to aim for if you want a good design thinking team. So it's useful from that. And it's and the order is in terms of the, the top ones are the ones that have been found in a whole series of papers to be the most, I suppose, the most difficult and most that require more skill. So the first one is prototyping. 
that they consider that's the the hardest getting people to make quick cheap dirty prototypes has been found that's difficult for a lot of people to get their head around and to do it and usually requires engineers who and this is the hard part it requires engineers who are quite happy to do the quick and dirty jobs who aren't perfectionists because a lot of engineers are perfectionists so and that was considered you, you know you've got to kind of re-educate these people into we just want something that's stuck together it doesn't make any difference don't care what it looks like as long as it does the basic function minimum viable product mm. the next one is about generating alternative ideation quite a lot of people start evaluating too early so getting people who aren't evaluating, who are just coming up with crazy ideas like painting prisoners pink. Um, so. Then comes defining the problem. That's the next hardest skill, getting people to create an actionable problem statement from what's actually going on in the on the ground for the users, whatever it happens to be. Then the next skill is testing actually doing experimentation, gathering feedback, then exploring, questioning, collecting information, finding out what's going on with the users, finding out what kind of range of context the users are going to be using this in, what kind, what's the range of users. It goes back to this accessibility and inclusivity thing. What kinds of people are we expecting that we'll be having to use this? and not just the people that we've got in front of us, and under what conditions are they like to use them. And then this whole idea about empathising, understanding the needs of the users, really getting inside what, where they're at. Evaluating. They found quite a lot of people are quite good at this, making judgments and things, um, but checking whether design meets the user's needs tends to be seen as one of the easier skills. And then finally optimizing slow iterations tends to be more of an engineering skill people tend to be quite good of good at those but that together actually makes quite a nice competency framework for design thinking and there's a couple of other frameworks but this for me this is one of the most evidence-based and they, they don't present it as a framework but they present it as from a kind of systematic review point of view of their competencies across a whole series of papers so then what i did and just for the last um five six minutes um before i shut up um i then did a quick research overview you know what is the research over the last kind of five six years saying about design thinking and as i say there's a lot just in the last four or five years you know there's three hundred thousand papers so I started to go looking for themes and there's a series of themes that started to come out of the, the, the papers that um, I was looking at. And I've, you'll get a copy of the slides. All of the uh, references are in there as well. So the first theme was the impact of design thinking in organizations on things like innovation and the performance of the organization, the performance of the people in the organization. There's a whole load of studies showing that Organizations that adopt design thinking processes usually tend to enhance their, firstly, their innovation capabilities. 
and that the overall performance of the organization starts to go up because it becomes more evidence-based. And uh, we'll come back to the empathy thing in a minute because that has quite an impact as well. So the design thinking's thinking process emphasis on user emphasis, iterative prototyping, and particularly cross-functional collaboration, which we'll come to next, create those together. And there's a couple of studies doing quite good um, analysis of the factors within design thinking. But those empathy, iterative processing, cross-functional collaboration have been shown in quite a few studies to contribute to a more effective problem-solving kind of culture within the organization and better innovation outcomes across the organization. And that's also outside of design thinking projects. So it kind of catches on within organizations. The second clump, I suppose, of, of outcomes that I saw from the, the, the research is this facilitation of cross-disciplinary collaboration. And this kind of really nicely hits on this whole thing about silos in organizations. It's a common issue. Um, a number of studies are finding that when design thinking is starting to be used within organizations, a lot of those boundaries between the silos start breaking down because it's multidisciplinary. So that we, we see like multifunctional teams working together better on innovation projects and design projects. What that does is it fosters a, a, a long-term relationship between people. So that it, and that lasts longer than the design project itself. So, and there's a, quite a few studies here that are indicating that design thinking acts as kind of a, a bridge between functions and disciplines and fosters significantly better collaboration with, um, with individuals with um, different expertise across an organization. And it also, and there's quite a few studies looking at this about cross-pollination of ideas that it starts to lead to more creative solutions. People will start seeking out people from other functions to say, here, what? look at this, what do you think is going on, as opposed to just staying within their function. So it's having a, it, a longer-term effect and, as we'll see in a minute, a cult, a, an effect on the culture as well. The next group of studies was around, the which you would expect, the enhancement of problem-solving skills. There's quite a bit of evidence here showing that individuals who are trained in design thinking tend to develop enhanced problem-solving skills, particularly the ability to think more creatively, be empathetic, and be systematic. And this is a big issue from my perspective in helping organizations deal with uncertainty. Quite often, the lack of structure in the uncertain situation leads to a lack of structure in people's thinking. They're not systematic in the way that they explore the uncertainty. And that's a problem. They're not seeing it as a research project that there's like a panic and they just start butting out all over the place. Now you can start in a random place with that exploration and that you've got to, but once you've started, you then got to be systematic about what you're doing. It's a research project. And what the, the 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 research is showing is that organizations that bring in design thinking start using design thinking 
a lot of the people become more systematic in their thinking and the, their practice as well. And this is this was found to be particularly evident in kind of complex, ambiguous problem spaces that kind of traditional problem-solving methods weren't really kind of touching the sides, as it were. Huge improvement in user satisfaction engagement, particularly around things like product development and design, um, but also user design. So people using, you know, within the organization. So a lot of, so traditionally what you tend to find is a, a lot of studies and people thinking about product design, selling to another organization. But if you start thinking about using design thinking on business models within the organization, you start making the business model usable for the people in the organization. You start thinking about it from a human-centered point of view as well as a customer point of view. And there's been a couple of studies showing that once design thinking takes hold, a lot of the things that are going on in an organization actually become easier for people to kind of use and get hold of. Um, and therefore, the kind of services and things that are going on in the organization kind of more closely align with the, the needs of the people and the expectation of the people are actually trying to do it. Um, and this alignment clearly increases both the user's satisfaction, but what they've also found is it also increases loyalty and engagement, both of customers and people within the organization. And part of that process is because they've been involved in the design process. This, so, you know, my, my doctorate's in education and I, I hadn't really thought about this. <laughs> so I was kind of reading this thinking, why the hell didn't I know about this? But anyhow, so in educational settings, there's quite a lot of research showing that, so design thinking has been more and more and more and more used for the development of curricula with the end user. So rather than, as happens now, they get somebody with a PhD or somebody with something and they say, What's your expertise? What do you like doing? Design a course around it and attract some people. What this is saying is, why don't you actually go out and talk to people and find out what they want that's connected to your area and design what they would need? Yeah, okay, why didn't we think of that? <laughs> so, so what we're finding is one of the areas that um, design thinking is being used more and more in is both higher education but also secondary education. Where they're, where they're involving the students in the design of their own educational process. And it's having a significant uh, impact um, right from, per se, kind of secondary school into higher education. And one of the, so there's a couple of outcomes that came out of the studies that is happening, is that not only is it encouraging more active learning, but that the students are more engaged and they're more in, they become better researchers, better critical thinkers, and they become themselves more inquiry-based as opposed to just waiting for people to teach them, which yeah, that's quite cool. Um, and then this is a biggie for me, is there's a whole slew of studies showing the influence on organizational culture of design thinking. So adopting design thinking 
tends to lead to cultural shifts within organizations. There's quite a lot of evidence of this, promoting openness to experimentation. And this is a biggie. We've covered this when we've talked about blame cultures and just cultures. There's usually a significant shift in promoting openness to experimentation and tolerance of failure. And that's a biggie for me in organizations. And and it also, there's quite a lot of evidence to show that it, it design thinking quite often will produce a more proactive kind of orientation towards learning and, or, and, and innovation within the organization. Um, and that some of the outcomes of this is that you tend to end up with a more kind of agile and adaptive organization that are more flexible, more responsive to what's going on outside because people are used to it. And I went there. I think you've listened to me enough. Well done. <laughs> so, uh, there you go. You can look at my mug. Questions, comments, thoughts. And I hope that's been useful. Oh, got chat going on. David? Yeah. Hi, Rose. Um, excellent, as, as usual. Uh, as you were going through this, I was thinking about, and you covered it, I guess, in your last point about the connection to, you know, those that come in and say we're going to uh, impose or put in change management. Um, so um, I didn't see, you know, direct research to, to that. I don't know if that was in the last uh, section. Um, yeah. And so, you know, th this this sounds more... Um, uh, ah, there you go. Teresa's holding up the book. Ah, good. Okay, good. Thank you, Teresa. Nice. Oh, well done. Just happened to be <laughs> on hand. <laughs> I'll pay you later. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yeah, there's a whole slew of uh, studies around organizational development uh, and design, uh, change management and things like that as well. Uh, that's a growing area. Great. Thanks, Rose. Nice. John. When I first saw your studies, on the, your research briefings on this, I, I looked at this as a different issue with the private sector and sales and development of products. I now see after today a direct nexus to police leadership and other oh, leadership yeah. with this, how you can really, especially with the, with the newer generations and how they look at things differently. Am I on the right track there? Yeah, definitely. There's so one of my areas as well. So yeah, it's being used more in Europe. So places like Belgium, um, Germany, and I think Finland. I picked up a couple of studies from Finland uh, in the police, uh, looking at kind of policing problems, evidence-based policing, and, and linking evidence-based policing and design thinking with some really useful stuff. In fact, there was a there was a really interesting study in Finland um, because they got put in a kind of paradoxical situation by some uh, um, politicians, as is usual, and they couldn't get themselves out of it. And they used a design thinking project uh, process to kind of solve it. Well, one, one more commentary. I'm going to hush, but mm. one of the largest problems we experience in the States is the age and the lack of the experience, no acumen development. And to me, the the definition of wisdom is the ability to be able to anticipate the consequences of the decisions you make. 
And I think this may be helpful in that context to younger officers to get them to try to think like this. And uh, you would you agree? Yeah, definitely, definitely. The, yeah, there's some interesting papers around policing and design thinking. Yeah, great. Thanks, John. Audrey. Oh, um, yeah. So I don't know if you noticed my head nearly fell off when you were not, you know, <clears throat> nodding when you were talking about the use of design thinking in higher education. I think Russ's head was going, you know, fairly. Um, consistently as well and um, I do think that's just a fascinating thing I'm working at the moment with that kind of situation but I was intrigued about when you're encouraging design thinking in higher education is that within the content or the process of learning? Yeah so it's well largely it's used so a lot of the studies are about the content but there's quite a few studies there's a growing amount of studies around how they're learning and particularly what context the learners are going back into, because they know that. And so there's quite a lot. So there's a huge amount in the States around um, what's known as instructional design, which is learning design, um, mm. that, that, that breaches both of those as well. It's, it's to my embarrassment, right? <laughs> so, um, when I started looking into the educational side, I started realising how big it was. and I had no idea. So... Mm. Okay. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of research, but I'm not sure a lot's happening in terms of applying, applying it, actually. I think no, a- it's not. It, it's still, you know, the courses I run, uh, old style, it's like, oh, you've got this expertise, come and teach it, and then see if you can get some people to get interested in it, basically, which isn't quite the You know, I'm looking at it thinking, oh, I think I need to rethink what I'm doing here. Mm. Yeah. Is there one or two papers that are specific to, you know, to that? topic within higher education design thinking higher education are the references yeah. on your slide yeah there's a there's a couple on there um but what i what i might do is is for each of those those categories and i'll do one for od as well i'll i'll do a load of um references okay that'd be great yeah great thanks marjorie russ yeah this goes to marjorie's point and also to john's um, there's a wonderful conceptualization that came from Clay Christensen. Uh, it's called Jobs to be Done. So I've just written something about, about an issue at a university. Right? Um, and, and the way I phrased it is the job that the university was hired to do. So I went to the university. I hired it to do a particular job. So if you reframe things in terms of jobs to be done, what do the public want the police to do? What do politicians want? And it's just such a fascinating and very easy way to reframe mm. all of that. And mm. doing so has amazing, I mean, the insights are amazing. And this is very much aligned with, you know, the whole design thinking idea, but it's a really mm. quick way to access it is why are you hiring this? What's the job to be done here? Mm. Yeah, exactly. And um, like, I, yeah, it's embarrassing, actually. Certainly from my higher educational point of view, it's really embarrassing. You know, I just look at the, and it's the same, you know, same in policing and, and like, it's so simple. Like, what do people need? Why don't we go and have a look at what they need? Now, some, you know, some courses are actually based on that because they're professional courses and they come from the that industry and all the rest of it. But courses like mine, they're not industry-based at all. I should add the corollary to that. The corollary to that is Stafford Beer. 
I'm just seeing who knows the who knows the acronym. Carry on. Hosiwad. Uh, the purpose of an organization is to do what it does, not what it's failing to do. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Rose. So um, this has been, been very, very interesting. I'm going back to your initial diagram. My experience in trying to you know, change up things in an organization, you have those, the entrepreneurs, uh, you know, the ones that really want to go to a new place. You have those that want to kind of bring things to the same. It's the, and you didn't draw a line there. The one that just, okay, there's a problem. We'll just keep going along. And I'm, I'm just trying to tie this into the discussion you were just having. If you go and ask um, employees or the public, what do you need? They don't always know what they need. So no. what tends to happen is they just kind of go along um, and they look to the expertise or sometimes, yeah. unfortunately, they listen to the naysayers or the, you know, so that's the practical. And anyway, my experience, the reality. Yeah. And Henry Ford says it, you know, if if, uh, if I'd asked the public what they wanted, they'd have said they wanted faster horses. But what he then did was he did what design thinkers do is they observe and they understand engineering problems so they understand the technology and they go right okay i can see what's going on here and what they're trying to do and actually i've got something better than a faster horse and we'll take it from there let's develop it let's throw out a couple of prototypes let's see what happens whether it takes or not and we have this kind of iterative process so it's not entirely asking them observation is also part of the design thinking process yeah, and it's like, you know, so iPhones, where did that come from? Nobody had even thought of them beforehand. Um, and there's lots of, you know, the, the idea comes from somewhere and usually it comes from that kind of observation thinking, ideation kind of process. IDEO's got some quite interesting courses on that. Um, there's some interesting stuff on YouTube. Yeah, nice. Thanks, Rose. Anything else? Any other comments David, questions. Um, can i ask you mentioned briefly time the time thing can you say just a little more about that so i can know where to go to when because i'm very interested in that because i see a lot of design thinking and housing that started in europe and it started uh in small towns in the u.s and i've seen it explode in the u.s um, for housing multifamily housing um, small community buildings. So the time period between when I read the first white paper was something like 10 years. And the design was all laid out and I can see it now everywhere. And it involved um, uh, federal help for infrastructure and it involved um, changing zoning laws in order to promote this housing push. And even in the small community that I live in now in the mountains, it's come there now with a brand new building that's gone up in the last um, three months. So I, I want to understand the time in design thinking. Time in terms of ideas catching on? The timing in terms of execution of ideas. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. That it kind of 
Yeah, it depends on a how big the projects, and it depends on the stages of iteration. So, usually, usually design thinking teams will be churning out iterations and learning from them as fast as possible. That, that the whole point of this is to fail fast, to get as much feedback as possible, and to fail fast. So the design of the actual product or the output shouldn't be like, well, maybe it depends on how big it is, but the initial product, the minimum viable product, the thing that goes out first, that is sold first, is as like as as reasonably quick as possible. What then will should happen, as long as the design process is, is kept going, is there are going to be iterations. It's going to grow, get better and better and better. But those iterations are slightly different from the original design thinking process. So usually, certainly from what I've seen from the research and some of the other bits and pieces, and by no means am I an expert in design thinking, I knew that much before I started looking at design thinking, um, is that it seems with some of the bigger things, vehicles, and you know, like cars and things, where you see the 2024 edition of the car and the 2025 edition of the car, they tend to be kind of different teams. They're iteration teams who are upgrading and things, whereas the, the innovative teams, the ones who are coming up with the concept cars, are, are different people and different teams, if that makes sense. So, is risk assessment part of the design thinking? Well, in a few ways, yes. Yeah, risk to the project depends on how much money the project's going to cost and things like that. Yeah, Teresa. Yeah, I was. I've got two questions. If there's additional research, I've worked in legacy organisations that have introduced design thinking, and they generally have a problem with. They can generate the ideas, but they don't know how to scale. So they don't know how to take it from MVP prototype to the market. Yeah. And there's a level of indecision. Mm. And that was my first question, if there's research on that. And then the second question, is there any direct research on the use of it in HR? Right. That second question I'll answer in a second. I'll go into okay. one of the research databases and have a look. Yeah, there's, there's quite a bit around the whole prototyping, because the prototyping isn't just the M MVP, the minimum viable product, the first iterations, is the prototyping is a process of taking is So the difference between creativity and innovation is creativity is about coming up with the ideas and having lots of ideas. Innovation is about turning it into a product that has value. And what that either means is it sells and it's bringing in money, or it's a value to a particular user in whichever way. So, and and quite often that last part gets forgotten. As you say, they get to the kind of first prototype and then they don't know how to scale it. There's a business thing on the end of this, which innovation is about business, about leveraging and finding value that creativity stops before that point. Now, creativity is part of the leveraging process, but they're not the same. And quite often the two terms get conflated. Max. Sorry, I can't I can't find the raise hand thing. Just directly on that, there's a very, very good 
publication that came out of the RSA, Royal Society of Arts, called From Design Thinking to Systems Change, which Ooh. particularly looked at kind of public sector, where you can often generate fantastic ideas and then you can hit a wall of, of regulation, market, um, you know, legislative restrictions and all of that kind of stuff. So it's very clever at kind of creating kind of hacks through some of that stuff. Um, it's written by a guy called Ian Burbage and it's really good. Um, design thinking systems change. Oh, thanks. Oh, that's really useful. Right, let me just have a look at the design thinking in HR. I'm just into solo at the moment. There is, uh, for that oh. one, there is a thing called Agile HR. Yeah, so I've heard of them, yeah. There's several branches to that. There's yeah. two different things, so you have to look widely. It's practitioner stuff. Um then the other one is finance. Uh, Beyond budgeting have put together some pseudo research. Some of it's based on Bernard Leaf Good, Live Good idea. Um, but it's been around for a while. And it's, you know, and again, these are essentially their prototypes for, it's called Beyond Budgeting. So prototypes for, for moving past that. So there is some practitioner stuff out there. There's some really good stuff because I used to work with a guy who's gone to the government to do this. I think it's a DBLA and, and other areas he's gone to. And there's a complete design thinking kit that the government have bought out that's free to use. All right. Yeah. Yeah. That's been around for a while. Um, I think it's digital government or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's been around for ages. Um, yeah. And it's very, very good. Um, more recently, they have a whole department um for systems thinking interventions run by a lady whose name i've forgotten but she came to do a talk for sio and uh it was quite interesting it was mostly interesting that they were funding it as a way of saying we've got to take some of this seriously and do something about it oh cool that is interesting so go back to the question about design thinking in hr yeah yeah so my first preliminary is about thirty-two thousand papers where would you like me to start? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so, yes, there is. <laughs> okay. Thank so, you. Um, the thing uh, is, what, what's interesting, let me just see if there's any systematic reviews. And here's a tip. If you're looking for research on something and you go to somewhere like Scholars, um, Google Scholar or somewhere, the first thing to look for are systematic reviews because they pull all the, the data together in a systematic way, followed by meta-analysis, followed by a literary review. Okay. Because they're they're pulling things together. So the systematic reviews, if if there is one, they take time. They're, they're quite lengthy processes to go through, but they're like the gold standard, followed by a meta-analysis, followed by a, a literary review. And usually lit reviews are done by kind of like be a PhD student or there'll be okay. a research team that's done a lit review and then just decide to publish it as a paper. Um, but the systematic reviews tend to be, not always, if they're following Prisma, they tend to be quite yeah. good. So thank you. Um anything else? Systematic literature review, David. That's what you need. Um, did you really, yeah, people, not quite, okay. not quite. yeah, thank yeah. you, close but not quite, <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, so this morning, when I did this this morning, people were really interested in the kind of problem definition side of things and have asked for more on that. So, and and 
somebody from last month asked for asked for the in fact this has been a request two or three times around design thinking so i just kind of thought right i'll do a quick thing quick overview we'll have a look at it if there's anything in particular that you'd like next month from about design thinking we'll run a second one around design thinking i won't go over the same stuff um and then we can head off so one of the things we're definitely looking at is um uh, the whole problem definition thing how do you get it because that's critical if you don't get that right you know you're solving the wrong problem or you're solving the symptoms but if there's anything else just let me know john in, in that vein and then i hear this everywhere i go the difference in a problem and a mess which goes back to wicked problems and stuff. It, that granular aspect would be most beneficial at looking at the difference in problems and, and, and messes, solution versus management, that would be very beneficial, I think. So the whole kind of problems, wicked problems, those kinds of things. That's correct. Mm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no problem. No problem. <laughs> right. Anything else? A couple of minutes. Probably design thinking yeah. and AI. The use of artificial intelligence yeah. in process. So there's... There's a few of those. Um, I came across a few while I was doing the 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 review for this. We'll have a look at that. Actually, that is an interesting one. Yeah. yeah David, I was um yeah, go on. yeah. I was interested that the in terms of looking at the competencies that um, defining the problem was uh, put at number three. Mm. So um uh, just a brief maybe on how they defined um, uh, which was the you know which were the hard competencies and why might be interesting. So again, okay. looking at you know ideation and why you know that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. I'll go back into that study and have a look. It was um, they, they used a number of matrix, um, including the number of papers on these things as a as a kind of heuristic for difficulty. Yeah. Well, Marjorie. Yeah, on the on the competencies, actually, David, that list is that about the most difficult or the most important? What was the what was right. the that? okay? So the there was a couple of studies. They the first couple of studies. What they did was they did a kind of a systematic review to look at the number of papers that the, the amount of research that was done in each of those areas as a heuristic of interest and difficulty for it. The latter papers were trying to grade it in terms of whether those skills were difficult for people to pick up or not within an organization. And so that so it was kind of a matrix between those, really, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. for me, it's a heuristic as a like the ones at the top are hardest for people to kind of get their head around and practice. They need to practice them. The ones mm. at the bottom, people tend to be able to do anyway. Mm. Okay, thank you. Right. Thanks, Andy. Great. I hope this has been useful and interesting. And, Brilliant. Um, Always. What was Cool. <laughs> Good. Yeah, we'll play again next month. We'll do a bit more on this. And certainly we'll have a look at the problem definition. We'll have a look at types of problems and things, um, a little bit more about the competencies. And I'm quite intrigued by this AI and design thinking as well. I, I did see a couple of papers. I just didn't go into them. Cool.
enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, oops. And um, I'll see you soon. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.